Hey, everybody, and welcome to the Pleasure Priority Podcast with me, Amber Taylor. This is the podcast all about how you can have the audacity to put yourself and your pleasure first, which ultimately shapes a life perfect for you. We discuss friends and family, career and money, oppression, healing, and mental health, current events, and historical ones too. Basically, all things life and pleasure and how you can create more of it authentically. I'm your host, Amber Taylor, and it's my pleasure to talk to you every week. Let's tune in. Hello, 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 my friends, and welcome back to the Pleasure Priority Podcast. Today, I have an amazing guest. Dr. Candace Nicole Hargens, and she is incredible, has a wonderful story, and I'm so excited to get into it with y'all. Would you like to inter- introduce yourself? Sure. Hey, y'all. My name is Dr. Candace Nicole, and I'm an associate professor at the University of Kentucky, where I study sexual wellness and liberation, mm-hmm. and really excited to be here with you today. <sighs> I'm so excited to have you. And just off that, can you tell us what sexual wellness and liberation means to you? Mm -hmm. So sexual wellness for me is multifaceted and there's not just one way that it works for everyone. There are different components of, I like to call it good sex, but there are different components of good sex that might work for me that don't work for you. But for me, there's consent at the foundation of it because it's not Mm -hmm. sex if it's not consensual. And Mm -hmm. then there is the ability to enjoy the experience. And so from there on, there might be different things that you like about it. It might be passion, might be intimacy, might be love, might be kink, whatever your constellation of good sex is. But that's sexual wellness when you have the agency to realize the health benefits of good sex in whatever ways feel right for you that are also consensual. And it's tied to liberation in that same way. It's like a vehicle for expressing your fullest self. Yes, it it leads you to freedom, which yeah. is how I feel about pleasure as well. Yes. It's like when you really put that first, when you know what you want, when you're interested in like, how does this work? How is How am I enjoying this experience? Not just about my partner, yes. all of that kind of stuff. And when you bring that into life, it's like, I'm putting me first. I'm putting my wants first. I'm putting my desires first. And that to me is freedom. Yeah. Yeah. So how did you get into this line of work? It's been a hot minute. Like, <laughs> <laughs> So my origin story is that I was a really precocious kid and I was always interested in like, oh, how is my body going to develop? And I grew up in the hip hop era of Lil' Kim and Foxy Brown. So that was mm-hmm. an influence and different ways of understanding it medically through my grandma's Encyclopedia Britannica and my granddad's like, hidden stash of porn, like all of those things (laughs) came together to make me someone that was like, what is sex? And then I just had a family that wasn't talking about it. So I had to find that information on my own. Mm -hmm. But then when I realized being a sex therapist and a sex researcher were actual career options, yeah, they had me. so. (laughs) (laughs) So I've been doing this work for, so since 2010, I guess 13 years now, Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah. And then just being a part of the Black community, I know that sex was not a big thing talked about in my household, my friends' households. And even when I like came to my mom with legitimate questions, at least in my eyes of like, 
what does this do? How does this work? Where is this supposed to go? I got the, you're too young for that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. We never revisited it ever. I feel like once a kid is bold enough and curious enough to ask, it's time to really be able to give some real answers. And sometimes parents- Something. Something. (laughs) Listen, and sometimes parents are so, feel, they feel so awkward about it. And I'm, I have a four-year-old now, so I'm on the parenting side of it. Mm-hmm. feel so awkward about it that we foreclose on the conversation, which then shuts our ability to give accurate information. And then kids don't find the information somewhere else, whether it's accurate or not. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. And how did you find yourself and your work received maybe by friends, family, when you decided to go down this career path? I think I had a lot of support. So the people in my life, my family were like, at first I was a high school teacher. So I taught English for a few years. And then I was like, okay, I know I want to go and be a psychologist. I've wanted to do that since I was 16. So I went back and did that. And I let them know I was doing it because I wanted to be a sex therapist. They were like, oh, is that a career? (laughs) And my family trusts that I'm really smart, that I'm high achieving, that anything I do, I'm going to do well. And so they weren't worried about like my career options with it. They just didn't know that it existed like I didn't for so long. So I've had a lot of support. And even at the academic level with my research and work, largely it's been well received because I tend to look at sex from the sex positive lens. So to your point about pleasure as the priority, like looking at sex, not these deficits, you know, especially when you study black sexuality, you see a lot of HIV prevention and mm-hmm. STI prevention and pregnancy prevention, but not a lot of like, how do you realize a more full, enjoyable, pleasurable sex life? And that's mm-hmm. the way I tend to look at it. Yeah, I love that. I was having a conversation with a group of girlfriends the other day, and one of my friends said, I don't know how to tell a man, she's a straight woman, but she's like, I don't know how to tell a man when I'm not into it. Like Mm -hmm. I could be very vocal when I don't, or when I do like it, or even when it's just okay. But when I don't like something, I can't say that I don't like it. I don't want to offend anybody. And like, here I go like, "Ah." (laughs) but I think that's like so common, especially among well, especially among women of color mm-hmm. and how we have this tendency to always please someone else, to always help somebody else, to always put ourselves in the back seat. And mm-hmm. I kind of want to ask you, what's your experience working with people who kind of have this mindset or this difficulty to put themselves first in their in these situations? Mm-hmm. So I I feel you wholeheartedly when you think about how Black women and women of color have been socialized to take care of everybody else's needs at their own expense. I was socialized that way. And so I get the angst around asking for what you need, the vulnerability around saying this doesn't work for me. That's a normal feeling when you've been socialized that way for 20 years, 30 years, 40 years. And so to normalize that feeling first is important and have compassion for yourself around where that feeling came from, even if you know you're going to need to divest from it and it no longer serves you. That's step one, not judging and blaming yourself for not being able to transform immediately, but saying, oh, this is going to be a work in progress because for as long as I've been socialized like this, it's not going to feel easy and it's not going to feel like good even. It's going to feel awkward for a bit, but trusting that it will feel awkward and it will feel uneasy for a little while practicing anyway. So even in small ways saying, would you mind doing this a little bit differently? Or here's something I'd like to try Mm -hmm. and making those suggestions or recommendations in ways that 
feel like baby steps is a good way. Cause sometimes folks want to go from, I've been a people pleaser for 29 years to, I'm about to say, I'm Meg the Stallion. Now you're going to do it how I want to. And this is it. Like, that it's ain't just it. Baby, just like that. Nothing <laughs> <laughs> that way. So you have to get in the practice of it and to see it as a practice as okay. And to receive the feedback about it from your partner or partners. So if you ask for something and they buck up against it, what's going on there? What's going on in your dynamic? Is it just because this is a new way of being for you or is it because they don't have the capacity to give you what you need? And you can have those conversations. And if you feel like that person doesn't have the capacity to give you what you need or the interest, then that might be time to reevaluate the context of the relationship. Definitely. And even with the, with the safety of having the conversation, because it's, it's one thing for ourselves to like dip our toe into being vulnerable, Mm -hmm. but it also makes it a whole hell of a lot easier when we have somebody to receive our vulnerability. And I work with a lot of men in particular. So if we're thinking about heterosexual relationships, because I'm gonna keep it 100, like queer women and queer women of color in particular really set the blueprint on pleasure and how to realize pleasure and to share it, to have reciprocity. And we're all just kind of falling behind and learning. But for people who are in heterosexual relationships, I've worked with a lot of men and they're like, I want to be able to please my partner. I want to know what she wants. I like, I want to know what she's thinking. And Mm -hmm. so we have sometimes these hesitations that aren't founded. There are some people out there where they're founded, but a lot of the men that I work with are like, man, I wish she would tell me because I actually do want to know. Exactly, exactly. And can you tell us a little bit about some of your baby steps into mm-hmm. like how you went from socialized people pleaser, got to put yes. everybody else first to, I don't know if you made it all the way to Meg Stallion, but hey, where oh. you at? <laughs> <laughs> and, and nobody, nobody makes it all the way, like, it's just a, it's just a journey, right, and so for me, it looked like, one, being able to identify what it is that I like, I had that one down pretty early on, like, because of my solo sexuality, and being a person that has a lot of experience with sex, and a lot of knowledge about sex, I was pretty clear on, like, these are the things that I want, and willing to try things that I didn't know about to see if I wanted them, so that part wasn't as hard, but it was like, how do I ask for what I want from someone else? Because I was raised to be a strong black woman. And as you release some of that, it's like, I can't do everything myself. I don't want to do everything myself. I do want to be in partnership. So how do I communicate that? And my husband and I have been together from, we've been married for almost seven years now. And he was just like, yo, babe, you got to ask me for the little things. He was like, because, you know, you're, you're struggling. I can watch you like try to figure out how to do something on your own. He's like, but I, I, I want you to feel like you can ask me. I want you to feel like, and so having a partner that made that invitation was helpful. But I also had a really, a really difficult reproductive health crisis. And so that journey of surviving that rearranged my way of thinking about it. Cause I had fibroids for quite some time and lots of surgeries and th- like lots of symptoms and problems for almost a decade. And that time I'm trying to just keep fighting through it and struggling through it as opposed to asking for the help that I need or the care that I needed. And eventually I was nearly on my deathbed. So I had what's called an ectopic pregnancy where 
egg gets implanted outside of your uterus in my fallopian tuber. So I'm in hyperthemic shock and I'm losing blood and all of these things. And when I recover from that experience, I'm sitting there like, in what ways do I want to change now that I've given the, been given this second chance at life? Mm. What are the things I've been afraid of that I don't want to be afraid of anymore? Because if you can face death and win, fuck it. Like I'm, I'm going <laughs> up at this point. Right. I, and that's how I felt stop. about it, right? I'm like, you can't look. I might as well ask for everything I want in this world. And people have consent to give it to me or not. That's okay. And being able to tolerate that. But I get to ask. And so I had to practice those things. So I was afraid of swimming. I was like, I'm about to take swim lessons and learn to float. And, you know, because of the surgeries and stuff, I had sexual pain in different areas. And I was able to communicate with my husband, like, hey, these positions don't hit the same way they used to hit. Let's try some new things. And so being able to take those steps, releasing that fear, knowing that even if I felt it, I could be courageous anyway. I think that made a big difference. Oh, I love that so much. And I know you touched on the fear part of it, but I know a lot of women feel guilt and shame Mm. if they can't meet their idea Mm -hmm. or society's idea of what they, you know, quote unquote, should be um, in the bedroom or quote unquote, should be as a woman. Uh, Did you experience any of that? And if so, how'd you Mm -hmm. move through it? Absolutely. So I think a part of the process for me was like, I'm a whole ass sex researcher. And for the large majority of my life, I had really good sex. And then when that changed, it was, it felt shameful to me. It felt like humiliating to be not able to experience my sexuality in the way I had experienced before. Mm -hmm. And so I think that shame is really normal when people, when you subscribe to this ideal sexual self, as opposed to understanding the evolution of your sexual selves. And so I had to even as a researcher, even as a therapist, reevaluate my investment in this one ideal type of sex, this one ideal type of sexual self and think, okay, this might be a season where desire looks different for me. This might be a season where arousal looks different for me. I don't have to be perfect at sex or anything else. And disentangling like my perfectionistic tendencies from my sexuality and the way I show up as a sexual being was really important in reducing that shame. Yeah. Oh, you said a couple words, right? Okay. (laughs) (laughs) But that part of the embracing the evolution. Yeah. So often we get caught up in the idea of like, okay, we are good in this area. There's a lot of areas we're not good, but I'm good over here. Mm -hmm. And I can be good over here forever in this exact same way. And it's just like, that's not how life works. No, it's not. And like, I even, it, like what you say literally transcends everything. Like, because yes. I had a client who was a former athlete and then, you know, after school, but was still athletic and then eventually got hurt, tore ACL and couldn't approach things the same and also didn't have as much of a reason to because she wasn't competing as much anymore. And it was like her identity. It was an identity crisis. Like, who am I without this? And I think so many of us can get into this place of who am I, if I'm not good at this thing, like Mm -hmm. I used to be, or am not experiencing these things like I used to be. And you brought up like, this is a season where this looks different. And 
what did you learn kind of like after you accepted that, hey, like it's just not the same as it was before. And just like after that acceptance and then going into, okay, this is a season where my desire looks different. This is a season where this looks different. This is a season where that looks different. What did you learn after you accepted that it's okay for things to look different? It was a reminder. So rather than an acceptance, it was a reminder of my inherent worthiness. Because, you know, when you're really, really young, you know that about yourself. You know, you came into this world worthy. You'll leave this world worthy. And there really isn't anything that can change that. And then the world works really hard to deprogram you (laughs) and to make you think that there is a human hierarchy and you got to get to the top of it or else you ain't shit. (laughs) So, you you know, you buy it. It's really elitist. And so you, you buy into that in subtle ways and not so subtle ways. And I had bought into that. And so for me, it was a return to, oh, so even as I do this type of work, if I'm going to talk to my clients and work through my research with this model of inherent worthiness, then that also applies to me. So remembering that all the things that I study also apply to me. (laughs) Yes, yes. And it's so important because we can fall into those traps of Oh my gosh, I I I have to do this. If I I'm don't, the one that's helping. How can I not? Yeah. You know, it's like, okay, I'm a human. Yeah, I have to be perfect or else I can't tell anybody else how to do whatever I tell them to do. Like I, and it's just no, we are all humans first. Mm-hmm. And we all cannot escape this human experience. Long as we got breath in our lungs and beats in our heart, we still human. Right. And, and I, that is okay and it's beautiful and it's raggedy. It's all of those things. Right? It's all of those things. It's messy, it's beautiful, it's dynamic, it's boring, it's all of that all at the same time. And I think when we truly acknowledge that for ourselves and remind that for ourselves, then we can help other people yeah. so much more powerfully and impactfully. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And so as you've built your business these last 13 years and kind of blazed the trail with your own research and your own experiences, how have you kept pleasure kind of at the forefront of shaping your life and your business in this way? It's been an ebb and flow. Mm -hmm. So sometimes I'm compelled by pleasure, like, oh, how good can this be? You know, what can I manifest? How amazing would it be? Like, for example, I got a book coming out in February of 2025 on good sex. I worked on that for like that proposal process for a year and a half. And it was rejection and rejection and rejection. Like, but I was like, this is going to be so good because this is something I've always wanted to do. So manifesting in that way. And then there's sometimes there's seasons where I'm just in grind mode and I'm going and I forget pleasure and have to be reminded of it. So I like to take a lot of vacations and travel get to some water get to the beach and the beach helps me think about the ebb and flow of all things Mm -hmm. you know so when I'm with the water and watching it ebb and flow and waves crash it's a reminder for me that's why it's one of my places where I I go to kind of get recalibrated and so traveling is pleasurable to me eating is pleasurable to me good sex orgasms are pleasurable to me and like remembering that I can find pleasure in many, many things. Mm -hmm. But sometimes I'm just in that mindset where I go into pilot mode and 
overwork mode. And then I feel like I hit a wall where it's like, uh, uh, I, I, <laughs> come on back, come on back to the foundation of why you said you were doing this work. Yes. Thank you for saying that because like you said, it is this ebb and flow. And especially I find some people that reach out to me like, oh my God, I haven't been prioritizing pleasure. And it's like, it's not this constant thing because if life was just only pleasurable, then it would be life. Like, yeah, (laughs) it just doesn't work like that. And of course, even after all of the socialization and and earning our worth and how we have to, or if we're subscribed to those beliefs, we have to do so much and chase so much and hustle so hard and grind so hard and do all these things. And so it's not just like a, oh yeah, I don't do that anymore ever again. But like that, that balance, that ebb and flow of going back and forth to it, but it's that reminder Mm -hmm. of coming back to it, that reminder of, oh yeah, this isn't just grind mode, hustle mode, the only thing I have to do and depriving myself, like there's also joy there. Yeah. And there's certain things that as I, as I grow, as I heal, as I evolve, that I used to take pleasure in or thought I was taking pleasure in that were just numbing me Mm. and distinguishing between things that are pleasurable and things that help me to not feel distressed or really important. So like I enjoy a good glass of wine, but if I'm drinking more than one glass, maybe a glass and a half, I know I'm moving into numbing and not pleasure. That's my, my line. If, you know, if I'm scrolling on social media and I'm doing it for longer than like 10, 15 minutes, I'm probably moving into numbing, not pleasure, you know? And so for me, there's, there's some lines that I've become more aware of where it's like, I'm just not feeling anything as opposed to I'm feeling pleasure and finding a way to savor experiences, which has, it's really tough for me as an impatient person, a person who (laughs) likes to just move through life fast. Mm-hmm. slowing down and savoring things helps me to find that line. And yeah. so if I'm spending 30 minutes doing something as opposed to five minutes, like if I'm eating a meal and I'm taking my time eating the meal and savoring each bite as opposed to, which is the way I eat often, <laughs> or if I'm eating in front of a screen or something like that, like those minute mindful moments help me to realize, oh, I can take pleasure in a lot of things, but I also can use things that could be potentially pleasurable in more moderate amounts to numb. And so I have to watch myself with that. Yeah, that's a very important distinction. And I associate pleasure to presence. Like, Mm -hmm. are you here right now? Are you actually with the experience or are you somewhere else trying to get somewhere else trying to numb out Mm -hmm. what you said? And this isn't to demonize numbing no. out because there is like, there are times when you need gone and be numb for a minute. Exactly. Exactly. So it's, it's, but it's having that important distinction of what am I doing right now and why am I doing it? And kind of getting into that bag, you know, later, cause mm-hmm. when you need to numb, you need to numb, yeah. but, <laughs> but getting into that bag of like, okay, what's going on here? What am I numbing from? What am I running from? What do I not want to feel? Yeah. And then allowing yourself the space and grace to actually experience and process those feelings. So you can get back to presence. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So kind of as you've nag- as, as you've navigated this space, 
what are some of the things that have kind of surprised you that you've been able to learn about yourself, learn about the industry, your clients, or what surprised you? I love sex research so much because there is not only like the studies and the way they've been done. Like I like, I like science. I say I'm a hot girl scientist, but I like finding out what people used to think was scientific and it'd be so raggedy. It'd be like, wow, y'all really thought you ate on that one in 1955 (laughs) and you were so wrong. Like, you know, like I like, cause somebody's going to come behind me and my science in 2055 or 2075 and be like, oh, she thought she ate with this good sex paper. And I'm <laughs> like, that's, that's the point of science to me, to always continue to improve upon it, to think about it, to rethink it, to ask new questions. And so I like, I like to critique old science or read old papers and be like, hmm, so you only surveyed 500 white people and thought that was generalizable <laughs> to everybody. Eh? Oh, don't you know that whiteness is normalcy? Oh my gosh. (laughs) You know, and so like being able to challenge it in my writing and stuff like that, I enjoy that part of the process. And that's what surprises me is how pervasive that is Mm -hmm. and how we still use many of those texts as the foundational texts. And so we're teaching sex therapy or we're teaching sex research. Mm -hmm. And often we're teaching it from a white middle-class, like Western heterosexist, like patriarchal norm even when we think we're being like really liberal and it's like okay and so I liked it that my team and I get to do something different yeah that's awesome and we definitely have to look at the lens when which the original information is Mm -hmm. given to us and kind of just on that I'm not in the research area but I have heard that just on women's pleasure the the research is lacking so it is kind of what's been your experience there and or maybe like what are some things that you've been researching yeah so my colleague Dr. Shamika Thorpe and I led this big sex study and we surveyed 500 black people with diverse identities ethnicities sexual identities ages genders class statuses and then we interviewed them and we did focus groups with them and we asked about pleasure. We asked about orgasm and masturbation. And so we've just been learning so many good things about how black people define good sex, how we experience pleasure, what correlates with our desire, like what our masturbation messages were. So I've been learning some really great things about the sex positive aspects of sex for black people. And one of my favorite things, so we put out a study on Black women's masturbation messages. And then we have another one under review about Black men's masturbation messages. Mm -hmm. And as you might be able to imagine, religious messages were predominant. And so sex, masturbation being a sin and a defilement and all of these things. But there were also some really sex positive, normalizing, affirming messages. Like you get to know yourself better and you know it's good for your health and it's normal for like, you know, just like, highlighting that it's complex it's not a single story yes I love that I love that so much because I not necessarily with masturbation but with sex it was definitely bad no no save yourself be Mm -hmm. pure all that stuff yeah (laughs) and then with masturbation it was like almost like at least in my household not even talked about oh yeah oh yeah like don't even ah. don't even mention it 
don't even mention it. Mm-hmm. And then so even I did a lot of dumb things just trying to figure it out. But yeah. <laughs> and it wasn't dumb. You know, you're being curious. You don't know. <laughs> exactly. You don't know what nobody's trying to tell you, but it's yeah. just like, it's mine. So let mm-hmm. me find out. <laughs> and it's just really like positive and reinforcing to hear yeah. that the, the narrative is changing and there are these positive messages around sex. And like, I'm just imagining growing up in a world where we ourselves and what we are naturally inclined to do yeah. isn't demonized. The way we all got here. The way we was all- through sex. <laughs> and so you would think we would be able to reduce the taboo around it and really approach it from a normal and even affirming lens. Yeah, that's what my goal is. Same here. And like in my eyes, we have or or the taboo around sex was created. Of course. Colonization, Mm -hmm. white supremacy and how even in all these different lands, how even in India, like the land of the Kama Sutra, where Mm -hmm. oral sex is still illegal in some places. Yep. It's just like it wasn't a bad thing for all these hundred of years and now it's thousands of years. years. And to me, it's because there's so much power in sexuality. Mm. There's so much power in knowing yourself and knowing what you want and being willing to ask for it. And I think that's why there's been like these taboos created of the hush, hush, don't talk about it. That's bad. That's impure because it, it literally strips us of our power, of our agency, of our desire to, or of our understanding to know what our desires even are. Mm -hmm. And, And I think even building on that. So there are all of these sexual scripts that are shaming and taboo. Mm -hmm. And people been people in the whole time, right? So there are always <laughs> there are always like leagues of humans who had those messages as the umbrella message, but were doing what they wanted to do anyway. That were enjoying sexual experiences outside the context of marriage. That were enjoying kinky experiences, like recreating pleasurable opportunities. So I love the stories of the resistors, the people who like, despite the scripts. For like engaging in disrespectability politics and thinking, I'm going to do me like blues women in the fifties, you know, when respectability politics was at its prime and it was pearls and it was, you know, ankle length dresses and such. And it was like, no, I'm going to talk about like being with my woman lover as a woman and doing things that people think are kinky. Like, I love that that existed alongside the civil rights movement. I'm curious about what's about to come out in this MLK documentary when the FBI releases this information. My hope is that we find that he was a complex human with kinks as opposed to something about sexual violation. Like I'm just leaning into the hope of that narrative. But like, you know, that that to me lets me know that we've created all of these scripts to, like I said, facilitate this idea of a human hierarchy that doesn't exist. Yeah. And colonization was definitely a part of it. Patriarchy was a part of it. Like like religion and those scripts were a part of it. Classism and capitalism were a part of it. Mm-hmm. And at a certain point, people said, fuck it. And I like that for us. Exactly. And I think 
people kind of always said fuck it but it was just behind closed doors and like you said with all those different distinctions Mm -hmm. of class race like just the human hierarchy hierarchy gender all that kind of stuff because even behind closed doors of the rich white folks they was having kinky parties regularly I mean the Greeks the Romans the Italians the English all all of the cultures (laughs) <laughs> well, the co- they love they, this the, the americans like all everybody <laughs> everybody, it everybody is was doing them thing that had, makes us all uh the same is we right. love <laughs> and had the audacity to be talking about other people it's just the audacity to me yeah and like even with that just to say question where you get your beliefs from mm-hmm. like you can believe whatever you want but I always say, don't believe blindly mm. when you're basing your life off of like these rules and regulations that the people who invented them don't even follow. Like, what do you, what do you, why? Mm-hmm. And when you don't have to contort yourself to be some image of somebody, what they think you should be. Yeah. So I say question everything. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then kind of with that, did you have any limiting beliefs around sex or sexuality to break mm-hmm. down? Or? Yeah, I think some of the early limiting beliefs were that solo sexuality was less a lesser type of sex than partnered sex. Mm. So, you know, thinking that masturbation is normal, healthy and good, but if you can get some with a partner, that's the height. And yeah. it's like, no, I just, I, I just feel like they're equally beneficial and useful ways of experiencing sex now Uh and those were like early early myths what else yeah Mm -hmm. that the sexual experience ends after orgasm and not really knowing about aftercare and like what that you know what that could be things like that yeah yeah no even with the with the first one I was in college and wasn't crazy but did did a couple little things and I was like but when I didn't have somebody to do things with I was like oh something's wrong with me Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. like oh well like I mean I could do this for myself but like oh I shouldn't have to be able to do this I shouldn't have to do this for myself somebody should be doing it for me somebody should like I should be desirable enough to have like a line out the Mm -hmm. door people that wanted and it's it's so damaging to believe that because then again we give our power to somebody else right like oh I into a mythical somebody else like nobody's even there exactly (laughs) but somebody should be there so I'm not gonna do it for myself and I'm gonna wait on this mystery magical partner and then expect them to do me right and then judge myself again when they don't Mm -hmm. So even just reversing that narrative of, I know me best. Yeah. I am my own best and favorite partner. Yes. Mm -hmm. I can bring other people in if I so choose. Yep. But not doing so or doing so has no effect on my inherent worth. That's right. Yep. Yeah. And then, yeah, even with the aftercare. Mm Mm-hmm. My world exploded when right? I was in Kinky Town. Uh, it's like, oh, okay. 
oh, so we get to talk about this before and be deliberate about all of the steps. Yeah. (laughs) We could bring toys in Mm -hmm. like this. Even I I saw that as a bad thing about me. Putting all, make it all the way without a toy or whatever and or even the idea that I, like it can be an enjoyable experience if I don't make it all yeah. the way sometimes I don't even have the desire to make it there yeah and that's okay too and just like re- really normalizing everything about mine mm-hmm. because it's mine yeah I love that just that it's okay to have the type of sex that's good for you yeah yeah okay dr candace so what are you doing this week to prioritize pleasure in your life what is today today is tuesday so i think that i want to have a really delicious dessert and eat it mindfully that is going to be one of my pleasurable practices and my um, niece is graduating from high school, so I'm going to go visit family, dance, laugh, celebrate. I love a good celebration, a good ceremony, so that's going to be pleasurable. And I think those two things are what I have in mind, but hopefully I'll leave an opportunity for other things that are pleasurable. Awesome. Tis the season, food and family. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and if the people want to reach out to you, see all the work they're doing, how, how would they do that? Sure. So I want to be found at drcandicenicole.com. Mm-hmm. That's my website. And then you can see some of the other projects I have going on there. You can also find me on Instagram at drcandicenicole. And that's where I am predominantly. Also YouTube, where my podcast, FTS, Fuck the System, and Ooh. How to Love a Human are featured so you can find me there and Facebook occasionally Twitter occasionally but not really so (laughs) so those are the predominant places I'm also like I shared have a book coming out by Row House Publishing in February 2025 called Good Sex thank you and I can't (laughs) wait like I'm in the writing process now so it's just beautiful to be able to dig down into these areas, these aspects of good sex and to learn, like I said, those historical pieces, learn some of the new science on it, pair that with my knowledge as a sex therapist and as a Black woman in this world. Yes, I am excited for that. Can't wait mm-hmm. for 25. Probably going to be on my recommended book list. That I'm just- Listen, because I'm going I'm to be letting <laughs> folks know when it's pre-order time, like, hey, y'all, how at me. Yes, I'm so excited. Okay. Did you have any final words of wisdom or final thoughts that you wanted to give to the people? No, I always end with, but I think you do this often, the yes, no, maybe so, like taking some time to write out what your yes is, what Mm -hmm. your yeses are, all the things that you're like, absolutely love it, want to do it again. Your no's are like, no, I tried it, won't be trying that again, or I ain't even got to try it. It ain't happening. <laughs> and you're maybe so like, it depends on the context, just mm-hmm. so that your sexual self-awareness increases. Because mm-hmm. when you start with being definitive about what those things are in this moment, and like I said, they can always evolve yes. for that. But what they are in this moment, then you're better able to pursue them, to attract them, to communicate them. Yeah. And keeping that conversation mm-hmm. top of mind. Yeah. And not just in sex, but in everything. Like yes. the next relationship. 
what do I want my day to look like? My career, am I a nine to five? Am I an entrepreneur? Am I both? Like, Mm. what do I want my life? What are my yes, no's and maybe so's of life? Yes. Yeah. Awesome. Well, it has been an absolute pleasure having you on the podcast. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for your time, your insight, your jokes. It's been great. (laughs) Thank you, Amber. Well, thank y'all and we'll see you next week. Hey friends, thanks so much for listening to this episode of the Pleasure Priority Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. If it's your pleasure, check me out on Instagram at Amber Taylor Coaching and my website, www.ambertaylorcoaching.com for more on increasing your pleasure across all aspects of life. As always, make sure to follow the show and check back each week for a new episode. I'd also love it if you'd leave an honest rating and review. And if you'd share the show with anyone else you think would benefit. Much love. Talk soon, friends.